Donald Trump is a petty dictator that aspires to one day be a major dictator. His role models are folks like Kim Jong-un, Xi, Vladimir Putin, who he has some sort of love fest with. I've never taken him particularly seriously. He thinks that he's, he's funny when he makes some of these claims and he likes to test the waters. But what he's talking about is deadly serious. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Eugene Vindman, a former Army colonel and prosecutor who was running to represent Virginia's 7th District in 2019 while serving as the National Security Council's senior ethics officer in the White House. Eugene's twin brother, Alex, who served on the NSC and has been a guest on this show, alerted him of Trump's infamous call with President Zelensky of Ukraine. And together, Eugene and Alex Vindman reported that call. That incident led to Donald Trump's first impeachment, and both of the Vindman brothers were fired for blowing the whistle. Eugene, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ken. Glad to be here. Did you ever imagine that your oath to the Constitution would require you to stand up to the President of the United States? No, Ken. I was uh, just kind of like a an army officer. And I sort of ended up in the White House a little bit by happenstance. Alex had sort of had the career that led to that his position on the um, National Security Council staff naturally. For me, I got a phone call about three weeks before I was supposed to, supposed to report to another assignment. And, you know, at that time, I thought uh, it was an assignments officer that was calling me. I thought, okay, here we go. It's going to be Iraq or Afghanistan or something like that. And uh, he he asked me, what do you think about the uh, White House National Security Council? And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. Never even thought about it. And I said, okay, well, let me know what you think. And uh, you got 15 minutes. So I, <laughs> I took a chance. I said, uh, yes. I figured it would be great for our commute. Alex and I live four doors down from each other, so we can commute together. We, we did that working at the Pentagon. And um, the rest is sort of history. What did you think when he first approached you about this phone call? It must have felt surreal in the moment. Well, I mean, when he told me about the phone call, we both recognized the gravity of what the president had attempted to do, the extortion, the, the, the criminal behavior, frankly, in my perspective as a, as a lawyer. We didn't understand necessarily like all the, the effects to us personally and how this would play out, but we knew that this was extremely serious. Now, the call itself obviously was not a surprise. It was on the books. In fact, before the call was scheduled, Alex and I were discussing, you know, the president had indicated there was some reluctance. He didn't call Zelensky when Zelensky won the presidential elections. He did end up calling him after, uh, after the parliamentary elections. And uh, there are also some rumors in the White House that, you know, there were some machinations going on. But we didn't know what the parameters were. We didn't know what the policy had not shifted. And that was from the National Security Advisor on down. So we knew it was serious. But when Alex described to me what he heard, frankly, we didn't spend a lot of time thinking about what we needed to do. I sometimes wonder, though, if, if he had gone into another lawyer or somebody else and that person had said, hey, let's put a pin in this. Let's think about this for like a day or two. Don't report it yet. You know, what, what would the world have been like? Would Donald Trump be in a second term? I mean, 
you know, the first impeachment led to a second impeachment. I mean, his there were some there was some quirky behavior put to put it kindly before that um, from from the former president. But it really started to, you know, the, the uh, election interfering and all of the major misconduct started to occur after the, the first impeachment. But we didn't spend much time. We knew we had to report it. We had a duty as Army officers, I as a, as a lawyer uh, with professional responsibility obligations. And that's what we did. We reported up the chain. You instantly recognized the gravity of what the former president had done trying to blackmail uh, the president of Ukraine. When did you begin to realize how large the consequences of your reporting it would be? Did you have any sense that this would result in an impeachment? Yeah, I think we we understood very quickly that if this ever became public, that it would have resulted in an impeachment. But when we reported the call to the the chain of command, you know, I, I had a few follow-up conversations because I was a, a legal advisor. And I remember distinctly the, the senior lawyer in National Security Council, John Eisenberg, who frankly probably bears some responsibility for this because he could have prevented this. And he, he failed to do that. He failed to do uh, what he should have done as a, as a lawyer. We sat, uh, or he sat, I stood behind him, and we, we were looking up code sections under U.S. code that the president may have or likely violated. So we, we had a sense of how, uh, how serious this was, but it was also the National Security Council. So every day, I mean, like right after the phone call, Alex had meetings, I had meetings, you know, we, we, we made the report. There were a couple of follow-up engagements with, with uh, the lawyers, but I went immediately into the next round of meetings and we, we kept working. And this thing actually didn't become public for several weeks uh, after we reported it, and we, we didn't know that it was ever going to become public. Remind me how your and Alex's role became public, because you weren't whistleblowers. You operated, and that's not a disparagement against whistleblowers, but you operated within the chain of command. Uh, you reported it to your superiors. In no way were you looking for attention. That was, I imagine, very unwelcome when it came. How did that unfold? Yeah, so you know, technically, there's a legal definition to whistleblower, and I think we did qualify because we were we were privy to or had learned about a violation of law and then reported it. And it doesn't matter whether you reported up the chain or not, but we kept it internal to the organization, which was our obligation. And uh, we didn't disclose it to anybody that was not cleared. But in the classic sense of when you think about a whistleblower, somebody that goes out to the public and says, hey, I have this thing, I have to make sure that the entire world knows, that is not what happened. And it wasn't until a number of things occurred behind the scenes. For instance, there was a, there was a, a whistleblower out of the intelligence community that came out and had learned about the call and then reported it. And then the IGs, you know, there's all these processes that work through the system. The, the, the inspector generals of different agencies got involved. And ultimately, there was a requirement for the inspector general, based on statute, to report it to Congress. And then Congress, when Congress, there were attempts to bury it, actually. There, you know, there, there's a significant history here of, of folks trying to overrule the, that um, determination by the inspector general and other folks that it didn't have to be reported. 
ultimately it was reported. And when Congress got a hold of it, they obviously immediately recognized this attempt to extort uh, our ally, our friend that was in, engaged in, in war with Russia for the personal political, political gain of, of Trump. You clearly understood immediately the legal implications of what the president had tried to do. When did it sink in that there were geopolitical implications, strategic implications that affected ultimately the security of, of our nation, but immediately the security of, of, our, of our ally? And we have seen that now play out with an emboldened Russia invading and all of that. Did you have an appreciation for just how dangerous, not just to the law, but to people's lives, the president's actions were that day? Um, no, not really. I mean, we uh, until it became public and all of these events started to unfold and there were impeachment hearings and uh, the, then the Senate trial, which unfortunately acquitted the, the former president, which then led to other uh, events and the ultimate invasion of, of, of Ukraine, you can't anticipate how something like this will play out in the real world. You know, once the, the match is lit, where the fire goes is impossible to figure out. But, you know, lighting the match, obviously, uh, the phone call itself is a critical moment and significant in of itself. If you light a match in a tinderbox, which is exactly what the president did, you could anticipate there will be serious results. You know, with, whether it burns down the barn or burns down your house or whatever, you may not be able to tell. Part of it depends on how fast the firefighters get there, right? Do you think, just to make it explicit, that Vladimir Putin was emboldened by Donald Trump's, former President Trump's extortion attempt against President Zelensky? 100%. I have zero doubt in my mind. Putin made his decision to invade based on a number of different factors. There's no one single factor, but he clearly recognized that he had caused a political firestorm, uh, the second one, after he had interfered and supported uh, Donald Trump in his initial election in 2016. He recognized that there was basically that Ukraine had become a political third rail, that uh, support for Ukraine was going to be highly politicized, and between that and, you know, what was unfortunately a disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, his belief that the U.S. January 6th, you know, the attack on the Capitol, the fractured support in Europe and NATO, he made a number of miscalculations. And, and frankly, his miscalculation about the relative strength of his forces with the Ukrainian forces, all of these things kind of built a picture in his mind that it was the time to attack Ukraine. But there is no doubt in my mind that the, the call played a role and was uh, one of the earlier dominoes uh, that set that, that reaction going. Once those dominoes began to fall in our country, when the impeachment inquiry kicked off, when it led to the impeachment, did you think that accountability would finally be arriving for the former president? Or were you as cynical about the Senate's cowardice as I and a lot of other people were? You were on the inside. So how did it feel at the time? I, w I guess I was naive in that regard, Ken. I had high hopes. I had high hopes that 
when members who I thought were ultimately, they put the interests of the, of the nation and national security ahead of politics, saw what the president was doing, that they would make the right choice. But what we saw was the politicization of a national security issue and how that ultimately caused a major war and negatively impacted U.S. national security. And we've seen continued politicization of national security issues, whether it's the holding up of nominations, and finally that saga is over, having achieved nothing but causing pain and damage to national security, to the holding up of aid to Ukraine, Taiwan, and Israel. Foreign policy, national security issues that continue to be politicized and um, Donald Trump, I don't know that he opened the door, but he made it okay. He made it okay to politicize national security issues, politicize the military, and that is extremely damaging to our national security. Well, once those taboos have been broken, it's almost impossible to reestablish them. And I'm, I'm thinking about these holds that you just referenced uh, for, for context a lone senator, a former football coach from Alabama, decided on his own, even though he knew he could not get support from his own caucus within the Senate to create a policy change when it came to health care for women in the military, he decided to hold up promotions of senior military officers to grandstand on this issue. It dragged out for hundreds of days, and he finally conceded after having gained nothing except disrupt the lives of hundreds of incredibly dedicated military officers, give the military itself a black eye, hurt our national security around the world, because for months, Fifth uh, Fleet didn't have a commander. You had empty picture frames on the wall in the Pentagon where the Joint Chiefs should have been. Incredibly damaging, but the real damage is in the broken taboo. Do you anticipate that this kind of thing is just going to be easier and easier going forward? Yeah, well, I guess uh, Coach Tommy Two-Step uh, decided <laughs> to stop playing games. But it was damaging. But you know how you, you repair this? Um, you elect leaders that actually put values in the people of the United States above uh, political gain and, and personal gain. And, you know, Coach Tommy is not qualified. I mean, he's barely qualified to coach uh, Alabama, right? But certainly not qualified to be a senator. Um, you need to elect folks that have the knowledge, the experience, the education and training. You can't um, start to, and this has been a problem, I think, with the Republican Party is, is that they've attacked education, they've attacked experience, they've attacked uh, qualifications, in favor of folks that they think are going to fight or burn the plate, the whole thing down. Cause they, I don't know if they've lost uh, confidence in the system or they have no investment in the system. I think I fear that's part of it. There are folks that are hurting out there and we have to understand that or that they've fallen behind economically or in some sense, and we got to address that. But the solution is not electing officials that are not qualified. It's electing people that have values people that have experience, and um, getting rid of the folks that are just in it for themselves or, or for political power. And you know, that's why this next election in, in 2024 is so critically important. The Republicans have held the House 
And it's been the least productive Congress, I think, in decades. And there was a study in the, in the, or the, a story in the Times that came out. And the people that I run into in my district, they want a government that works. They understand there's a role for government. And they want, some of them may think that government needs to be limited, but you know, whatever government there is needs to work. It can't be uh, shut down after shut down and, and just useless votes. They want a government that works and electing people that will actually get the job done. Heart health and staying healthy, especially when you have a family that you want to be able to spend as much time as possible with, is so important. We could all benefit from heart-healthy energy, one of the best ways to get some, by supporting your blood pressure and circulation. Superbeats Heart Chews are an easy and convenient way to support healthy blood pressure. They're plant-based and stimulant-free, so you get a green boost without the jitters. Paired with a healthy lifestyle, the antioxidants in Superbeats are clinically shown to be nearly two times more effective at promoting normal blood pressure than a healthy lifestyle alone. Superbeats Heart Chews are incredibly delicious and so much better than any alternative supplement out there. Superbeats is the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended beat brand for cardiovascular health support. It's blood pressure support you can trust. Superbeats Heart Chews support healthy circulation, so you not only get blood pressure support, you also get productive, heart-healthy energy without the crash. Double your potential with Superbeats Heart Chews. Get a free 30-day supply of Superbeats Heart Chews and a free full-size bag of turmeric chews valued at 25 bucks by going to BoatsBeats.com. Get this exclusive offer only at BoatsBeats.com. Have you ever wished that you had a whiter and brighter smile? Well, before you visit a dentist, you should know that their whitening treatments can be very expensive. And it's not just the price. You also have to Book the appointment and schedule time away from work or family to sit in a dentist chair while undergoing the procedure. It's a hassle. Fortunately, now you can try Smile Actives at home or anywhere, anytime. Smile Actives offers a safe and affordable alternative to those expensive whitening procedures. 97% of Smile Actives users in a clinical trial reported up to six shades whiter on average all within 30 days. Simply add Smile Active's Pro Whitening Gel to your regular toothpaste. It's been formulated with PolyClean technology to boost stain removal and deliver active whitening ingredients into teeth screws and crannies to get better whitening. Smile Active's makes a teeth whitening gel that can simply be added to your toothpaste every time you brush your teeth. So no change in your routine, no extra time, and no more messy strips, trays, or lights. People will start commenting on your whiter, brighter smile in days. Smile Actives is the whitening boost your favorite toothpaste needs to give you the smile you deserve. Visit smileactives.com boats today to receive a special buy one, get one free offer with auto delivery plus free shipping and handling. That's smileactives.com boats. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I want to talk about your race and the Virginia 7th in a second, but the stakes nationally are just off the charts in in 2024. When I think about T1, what I what I call the first Trump administration, there were a handful of occasions in which a single individual stood between the former president and a major constitutional crisis or lawlessness. You were one of those people. My fear in a second Trump term 
is that the people like you, like Mark Milley, like others who stood between the president and doing something like invoking the Insurrection Act, those people will be replaced by vetted Trump loyalists, the constitutionally minded public servants will be gone, and the guardrails will evaporate. I am just incredibly worried that a second Trump term will be so much more efficient in obliterating those guardrails and and ignoring the rule of law. And I think one of the first things he's going to do, he has said he would do, is exact retribution on his enemies. I would imagine you and your brother at the top of that list. How do you think about that? Yeah, I, I uh, have no doubt. And like you said, he he's already said what his plan is to have a political purity test for civil servants and to, to put in loyalists. And it's extremely dangerous. And if you think about our, and we talked about this in the, in the context of the military, but our government, we have the constitution and we have laws. But it's sitting on top of that are, are a bunch of norms that are not written in law. And so there's a lot of leeway. In T1, Trump eroded a, a number of those norms. Whatever he hasn't done in T1, he's going to try to do in T2. And he's going to be completely unconstrained. He said he wants to be a dictator for one day. I mean, anybody that's read history, studied history, knows that you only need to be a dictator for one day to install yourself as dictator for life. Right. And um, I have a great deal of confidence in the American people and Virginia voters. We saw it in, in 2020. We saw it in 2022. We saw it this year in, in 2023 in Virginia. The American people, the voters, don't want extremists. And it's on the left side, they don't want extremists, which I think are also dangerous. I think I need to get out, that out there, that extremism on either the right or the left is very dangerous. It's the middle where the vast majority of Americans find themselves that needs to hold. And that middle has been reassuring. And that's why in 2024, I have a great deal of confidence that Trump will get his butt handed to him. And it's going to be a tough fight. I think people are maybe displeased with um, what they see from the current administration. But when they go into that voting booth, they're going to think about reproductive rights. They're going to think about safe schools. They're going to think about democracy, which has repeatedly been one of the key issues. And they're going to, they're going to look at, you know, a four-time indicted former president that is barred in, in one state at least. And, and, and they're going to look at the alternative. And they're not going to vote for the insurrectionist dictator sort of wacko. You wrote this on Twitter about that Colorado decision. The Colorado Supreme Court got it right. Donald Trump engaged in the insurrection and should not be on the ballot. He deserves to be nowhere near the White House. And I will stop at nothing to make sure we preserve democracy and the rule of law. I've got not only a former paratrooper uh, in front of me here who has sworn a note to the Constitution, but a lawyer and a candidate for Congress, uh, what is your assessment of how this case is going to play out? Because I think it sends an incredibly powerful signal, but this story is by no means over when it comes to barring the former president from appearing on ballots. Yeah, so look, there are two sides that are interesting to this argument. On the one side, obviously, the American people have the ultimate decision. 
in voting for Trump. And, and they vote against him in 2020. They'll do it again in 2024. But we also have laws on the books. And one of them, the Constitution, 14th Amendment, prohibits or disqualifies insurrectionists and insurrectionist supporters. And they're factually speaking, there is very little doubt in my mind that the former president had a, a role, had supported the insurrection. And so let's look at the facts of what he did. If he's an officer, and I think he is. That's important because of the verbiage in the Constitution, right? An officer of the United States. Exactly. And so, I mean, I probably don't need to spend the next 15 minutes, Ken, kind of going into the nuance of this. But I will say he, he meets the criteria for an individual that should be disqualified from running for office because of what he did on January 6th. And I think the, the Colorado court got it right. And this is probably the first of a number of cases that are pending filing. The Supreme Court will probably step in at some point and uh, preempt uh, a number of these cases. They're, they're going to be filed across the country to bar Donald Trump from being on the ballot. But there is no one that is above the law. And Donald Trump has always been treated as this guy who like plays by different rules and different rules apply to him. Well, that's just not true. Different rules, rules don't apply to him for stealing classified information and putting it in his, in his closet. Different rules don't apply to him for extorting, for extorting foreign leaders. They don't apply to him for any one of the, the, uh, the cases, you know, for attempting to convince Georgia officials to give him 11,000 and change votes. No, he is a citizen like everybody else. He's going to be treated like everybody else. He's going to be held accountable like everybody else. And as a prosecutor, I feel very strongly about accountability and he needs to be held accountable. And if that means a lawsuit that bars him from being on the ballot in Colorado because he doesn't meet certain criteria, then that's what it means. And his hostility to the Constitution, to the peaceful transfer of power, goes well beyond the events surrounding January 6th. He has said he'd be open to terminating the Constitution uh, when pressed, I believe, by a CNN reporter, it might have been Brian Karam, about whether he would honor a peaceful transfer of power. He said, we'll have to see what happens. And even more recently, when when people have pushed back on his on his claim that he wants to be dictator for a day, he stood in front of crowds and said, I said it, I stand by it, I want to be a dictator for a day. And as you said, everybody knows that there is no such thing as a dictator for a day. When you get power like that for one day, you keep it. Exactly. And this is why I keep coming back to, I mean, he has some folks that are, it's a little bit like in Soviet times, or even in Germany in World War II, there's a cult of personality that surrounds Donald Trump. And he has this cult, and they will support him no matter what. And he, he was right when he said he can shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue in New York City, and he would get away with it. For a certain group of folks, that is 100% true. But that is a minority of this country. I think it's somewhere around 35 to 45% at the outside. Nowhere near what is necessary to get him elected to president. And as long as the American people go out, they vote, they're motivated in 2024 like they were in 2020, this will be the last Donald Trump election. 
Tell me about the Virginia 7th, what you're hearing on the ground. I wouldn't imagine door knocking has started, uh, but what are folks saying to you about 2024 and and the stakes that they feel personally? Yeah, so, I mean, democracy is a, is a major issue uh, that I hear about. People are concerned about Donald Trump and the return of Donald Trump, but they also want, they want a government that works. So they want to elect folks in the mold of, of the incumbent who is running for governor, uh, a very common sense, middle of the road Democrat from a national security background. She's done a great job for the people in Virginia 7. And frankly, she's, she represents the, the, the middle uh, of the district quite well for middle of the road Republicans and Democrats and, and progressives as well. A strong supporter of, of like myself, a strong supporter of reproductive rights, High quality, safe schools, uh, infrastructure. Uh, we have we have uh, the ninety five corridor that runs through here. And if anybody's been through sort of Northern Virginia on the way to DC, they understand what that that night uh, what a nightmare that that roadway is. And so, immigration is actually a big issue here. We have one of the most diverse regions in the country, and so we have a lot of immigrants. Uh, immigration is a big issue. I think, uh, like me. People believe that immigration is a strength. Immigration does not pollute the blood of America. It's the lifeblood of America and always has been. But they also recognize, I recognize that we're a sovereign country that needs to control its borders. I look at this as a purely national security perspective. We need to control our borders. We need to know who's coming in, who's coming out. And it's just that simple. And so these issues, along with housing, the price of housing is extremely expensive here in Northern Virginia, the price of food. These are the issues that voters care about. And I think, you know, bringing, I personally bring a perspective to this that is probably somewhat unique for the, the folks that are in the field here for, for Virginia 7. So not only am I a longtime resident here in Northern Virginia, and I've had kids that have gone through through public schools, and that means a lot to me. And I have a daughter, so reproductive rights mean a lot to me. Infrastructure means a lot. All the things I just mentioned. Um, but I understand kind of the place that the U.S. has in the world as a leader, as kind of the linchpin in security, global security, and, and a democratic or, or rules-based world. And when Russia attacked Ukraine going on almost two years ago, oil prices spiked, which means people in northern Virginia were paying more for the, the oil at the gas station, at the pump. Inflation at the grocery store spike because so much Ukrainian grain, Ukraine is a breadbasket for that part of the world and for, for much of Africa and, and other countries. And those geopolitical effects, because we're ultimately interwoven world, our, our strength is economic strength, just as it is military strength. Being able to talk about those issues, understanding the, the U.S. role, how important it is for us to stay engaged is, and having been at the White House, having advised on major issues of national security and geopolitics is critically important because ultimately it's a federal office. It's, uh, it's a federal office where you're going to have to be able to understand and function uh, from day one and weigh in on, on very serious issues. You referenced uh, a phrase earlier in your answer, uh, pollute the blood. And I would love your perspective on the former president's rhetoric around this because not only are you an immigrant, he's talking about you, uh, you come from a Jewish family, from a country that is experiencing 
unattempted genocide, Vladimir Putin's invasion of of Ukraine. You check a lot of boxes. How does it feel when you hear the supposed leader of the free world quoting Adolf Hitler approvingly? Yeah. So, I mean, Donald Trump is a petty dictator that aspires to one day be a major dictator. His role models are folks like Kim Jong-un, Xi, Vladimir Putin, who he has some sort of love fest with. It's hard for me to understand. I, I grew up in New York City, and so Donald Trump was sort of this perennial clownish figure that nobody took seriously in New York City. And so I've never taken him particularly seriously. He thinks that he's, he's funny when he makes some of these claims, and he likes to test the waters. But what he's talking about is deadly serious. There are attacks all throughout the country on Jews, on synagogues, and um, anti-Semitism has spiked. The extremist right, white supremacists, have found a voice, have found, uh, have been bolstered by him. And it's extremely dangerous. And I've never been cowed, which you know, may not be surprising after 25 years in the army by folks, you know, coming at me uh, on social media, but I am concerned. And I actually have a a good friend of mine who's a a neighbor and he's Jewish and a vet. uh, Sounds like your brother. (laughs) Is it Alex? (laughs) uh, It's not Alex, uh, but it is. He's highly skilled and highly trained. And for the last month, he's held post at the entrance to his synagogue where his daughter goes to day school. Wow. Because there have been incidents of either bomb threats or attacks. And he's armed. He's, he's got law, law enforcement officer certification. It would be a terrible mistake for anybody to go to that synagogue and be aggressive. But the fact that he has to do that is very much disturbing. Yeah. It is a dark indicator. And uh, I worry that if we reelect... President Trump, all of those groups are going to be further emboldened. I have a a tactical question for you, um, vet to vet. I worry about a a second Trump administration, T2, pushing the line on constitutional issues, attempting again to force the military or order the military to do unconstitutional things. The only thing that prevented it last time were – certain brave individuals. We reference Mark Milley refusing to transmit the order to invoke the Insurrection Act. If those safeguards are gone, those failure points for democracy might come down to a a captain in the 82nd Airborne on the the front lines or a lieutenant flying uh, an SH-60 helicopter. What can we do to provide those people with the encouragement, the backup needed to choose their oaths of office in the face of a potentially unlawful order from a president of the United States? Well, look, a lot of that's being done now. These are great American young men and women that have taken the oath to support and defend the Constitution, which, which means something. And every day they are being ingrained with values. They're living the values of the U.S. military. And General Milley demonstrated that, at least in that in that one scenario at the four-star level. But there are also, you know, lieutenant colonels working in offices and, and um, in the White House and other buildings that are, are living those values. And those 
that that captain and that lieutenant that you talked about also they live those values as well so um there are always going to be folks that fail to live by the those values but that's the minority and really the the way we prevent that from ever happening is by ensuring that everybody goes out to vote in 2024 and Donald Trump never gets the opportunity. I'm with you 100%. Uh, it's great talking to you, Eugene. Where can folks find you and, and how can they help out? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at, at YVinman, X now, uh, which is unfortunately, it's a platform. It's not the platform I wish it was with um, Elon Musk. I'm also on um, threads. I'm on Instagram. My campaign is... Uh, at vinmanforcongress.com. So you can find me and occasionally you'll find me on uh, MSNBC and CNN. Last night, Alex and I had a treat. We were on The Last Word uh, with Lawrence O'Donnell. Ali Velshi was hosting, but Alex and I were both on the show at the same time. So it was a good time. Very cool. Well, we will put a link in the show notes. Great talking to you and, and good luck. We're rooting for you. You can also find me in Northern Virginia. <laughs> Indeed. Thanks, Ken. Much appreciated. This is a great time. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rolofman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.